Thanks, Barbara, very much. Morning, everybody. Let's uh, pray together, shall we, as uh, we come to God's Word. Lord, we are uh, completely dependent upon you. All that we have is from you. And you alone have the words of eternal life. We are asking that as your word comes to our hearts today, that you would open our eyes, our ears, our minds, and our spirits to receive all that you would say. Help your speaking to me. Help your speaking to us this morning. Not be in vain. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Last week, uh, we heard about Jesus being extreme in different ways. Our experience of Christians is so often that they live a middle-of-the-road kind of life. And over these last few Sundays, we've been contrasting our kind of of middle-of-the-road, easy-come-easy-go type of way to live with the Jesus that we read about in the Gospels. And you looked at sin and sacrifice and service. And I want to offer to us this morning another way that Jesus is extreme. He's extreme with his grace. Grace is giving or getting something really good that we simply have done nothing or could not do anything to deserve. And there are two kinds of people that I want us to meet in these next moments together. The first is the grace giver, seen supremely in Jesus, and the second is the grace killer, so often found amongst those who claim to follow Jesus. It's another example of how as Christians and as churches we can find ourselves a long way from the Jesus in whose name we say we unite. So here we go, meet the grace giver, but even as we do, be aware of the grace killers. I hope you have those uh, verses that Barbara read to us open and in front of you. If you're not, the reading, uh, the, the numbers and so on are there for you to look at. And you might have noticed as uh, Barbara began to read that there is a little note in the Bible about the uh, authenticity of these verses. Did you spot that in the NIV? It's there uh, at the beginning explaining These verses are not in many of the earliest manuscripts associated with John's Gospel. I haven't got time to delve into the whole issue, but it's worth a comment here. What what these uh, verses, what this note is alluding us to, is that the earliest uh, manuscripts of John's Gospel uh, didn't have, or at least most of them, didn't have these verses. In other words, they probably didn't originally belong with John's account of the life of Jesus. That does not mean that they aren't original, that they don't go back to the life of Jesus. If they were written by anybody, they were probably written by Luke and have found their way into John's Gospel. So their authenticity is not question, but where they should be in the Gospels perhaps is, and that's a secondary issue. So with that in mind, here we go, verse 2, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, they made her stand before the group. Who gets up at dawn? You've got to be pretty keen on the day ahead to get up 
at dawn. And verse 3 tells us about a group of people that were so keen on what they were doing that day that they were up before dawn. And even before the sun rose over Jerusalem, they'd already caught someone in the act of adultery. When was the last time you caught someone having sex? That's a rhetorical question. Just think about it. Please don't speak out loud. I have never caught somebody having sex. Maybe I've lived a really sheltered life, but I've never caught somebody. Maybe I haven't tried, maybe I haven't looked, and maybe that's the point. For all the sexualization of our society, we do not generally see people having sex except in films and things like that. But these guys caught this woman in the act of adultery. My best understanding of of what was required for men to bring this accusation, and it was always men, uh, and that says something in itself, uh, this accusation to be brought was that it needed two witnesses at the same time and at the same place to catch people actually in the act. What's my point? My point is that you have to be singularly determined to catch people committing adultery. Here were these men staking out in the small hours of the morning. More than one of them was up and about, making it their business to be in town, to spy, to catch, to trap. They had made exposing other people's sin their business. It's a horrible attitude. Suddenly I find myself remembering the story that Jesus spoke about pointing out things that are wrong with others when there's a mighty great plank in your own eye. Remember that one? And there are a few things straight up about this story. Behaving like that is very, very dangerous. Why? Because you can become so easily hoisted on your own petard. Before breakfast, these guys wished they'd never done it. It was a totally, secondly, pompous and arrogant way to behave. And such attitudes are incredibly destructive to the kind of kingdom that God is trying to build. And thirdly, their attitude is nothing like God's. God seeks you out, not your sin. Someone say hallelujah. God comes looking for you, not looking for what you have done. When Adam and Eve went off peace in the Garden of Eden, and God comes, what does he say to them? He does not say what every parent says to their child, what have you done? He's not as interested in what they've done as in where they are. So as God walks in the garden, he's seeking not what they have done, but where they have ended up. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Haunting verses, a haunting phrase as God comes looking for the creatures that he knows and loves, and they are no longer where they should be. God searches the person, not the sin. Here then in our story, these supposedly godly men are finding themselves holding the wrong end of the stick, camped on the wrong side of the fence. So they come bursting in, full of this pompous pride, fully satisfied at a successful night's work. Does Jesus share their glee? No. Does Jesus share their success? Their enthusiasm for the catch? No. Jesus scribbles on the ground. He ignores them. Metaphorically, maybe, literally, he turns away. Whatever he wrote on the ground, he's keeping his distance. He's separating himself. He has no time for their actions, no support for their methods, no agreement with their goals. I've no part in this, as he scribbles on the ground. 
I have to say that if we find ourselves quick to judge other people's wrong, or slightly gleeful at another's failings, Jesus probably turns away from us too. God seeks us, not our sin. He comes looking for you, not what you have done. Can you imagine the scene for a moment? All these respectable deacons and elders. The kind of photos that would have dawned a a good Baptist vestry some years ago. And they march in this scantily clad woman into the middle of this public courtyard. She's probably barely had chance to cover her naked body as these two men old enough to be a dad brings her out of bed to the group. And so there they stand before Jesus. A young woman, barely dressed, panic-stricken, shame-filled, fear-gripped, and a group of overweight, or at least that's how I imagine them, maybe unfairly, red-faced, sweaty, smug, arrogant, gleeful, cocky, smirking older men. On whose side are you? On whose side are you? We think it's obvious which side we're on, but it's not so obvious because we so often find ourselves on the wrong side. We, we glimpse that we're on the wrong side of the fence when we quickly point out the fault of another. Or when we, with a little delight, share of another's failings. We don't gossip as Christians, we share. Or we make ourselves look big by making someone else look small and suddenly we realise we're more like those men we want nothing to do with than this woman caught. Was it a moment's indiscretion? Was it a life of wrongdoing? We don't know, but she was caught. Jesus turns away from their condemnation. Such exposing in that way had no place for him. Maybe he turns away still. But they don't let him. Hey, teacher, what are you going to do about this? The law says we must stone her. Hey, teacher, listen to us. What are you going to do? It was a clever trap. Whichever way Jesus answered, he would be ensnared. But with characteristic brilliance, Jesus dodges the issues to get their issues, to get to the real issue, the heart of the matter. And he speaks not to their law, but to their hearts. And he says, hey, guys, the deal's this. If any one of you is without sin, let him throw the first stone. Suddenly it went quiet, I imagine. And with those words hanging in the air, he returns to his scribbling. I bet no one spoke, everyone knew their trap had caught themselves. All that could be heard was the thud of stones dropping to the floor. And eventually the thuds stopped. And Jesus and the woman are alone. Notice the power of this particular moment in the story. This guilt-ridden, scantily-dressed, shame-filled woman is left with the only man who had every right to throw all the stones. And there she stands, very powerful. Woman, where are they? Verse 10, has no one condemned you? Verse 11, no one, sir, she said. The only person left to make judgment is Jesus. And this microcosm of a moment early one morning is a massive universal truth. The only one who can judge is Jesus. He alone has the right. He alone will be left standing when everyone else has gone. We alone will be left before him when everyone else has left. No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Only Jesus can judge and he chooses not to condemn. 
Some of us have listened to the crowd too much, you know. We've been afraid to come close to God because we feel so guilty, so shame-filled, and we've believed that God is more like the angry mob. That God is more like the way Christians sometimes make us feel. Some of us have been afraid to come close to God because we've never really believed that God is actually like this man, Jesus Christ. And some of us need to hear from Jesus. The only one who really matters. The only real judge when it all comes down to it. Some of us need to hear, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. So what is this then? All soft on sin. Is this somehow backpedaling from what we looked at last week? Is this woman's sin unimportant? No, not at all. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's very clear, it's very direct, it's very unambiguous. You must root sin out of your life. You must leave this place determined not to go back to the way that you've lived. This raises for me a question. What is the most effective way to help people do the right thing? Does forgiveness or condemnation motivate change in a person's life? Does forgiveness or condemnation motivate change in a person's life? If you're leading a community, a church, that wants to see lives change, what is the culture that you want to create? Is it to forgive or to condemn? Which of these two actions will empower me to change my life? Or to put the question another way, would the actions of the angry, self-righteous bigots that collared the woman and publicly shamed her, would their actions encourage this woman to a change of heart? Or would it be the unmerited forgiving grace of Jesus that would encourage her towards a change of heart? Now I accept that after the public humiliation, she might have been so traumatised to ever risk being caught like that again. But you know, it's our hearts that matter. Would their actions have precipitated a change of heart? What do you think? I think not. I believe that it's forgiveness and grace that empowers us to live right. Condemnation teaches us to run to hide, to suppress, to deny, to fool others, maybe even ourselves. Condemnation teaches us to look like we are living it right, while our hearts are far away. But when Jesus forgave that woman, she knew the debt that she owed. She knew the gift that she'd received. She knew she'd been given what she did not deserve, what she could not have earned. And when people treat us like that, it changes us. It touches us. It's precious to us. And we don't squander by living the same old way the precious gift that we've been given. It's what Jesus modelled, isn't it? When he came here on earth, he said that he'd come to the world. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God, who above all else, wants change in our lives, wants to release us from the grip and the destructive forces of sin that Heather referred to last week. What's his strategy to change us? To condemn us? No. To forgive us? Yes. We have to create at Burlington a culture of kindness, a community of grace 
That's the sort of community that best reflects who Jesus is. Because that's the community that hurting, broken, sinful people need. A place that forgives them to be different, not condemns them to stay the same. Sometimes I get criticized for not preaching about sin enough. Someone uh, chatting to me recently uh, about this, and it was their thought that every week, every week I should be pushing home how sinful we all are. How the sin is, uh, is ravished among us and destroying us from the inside out. How far we are from what God wants. And what a dreadful mess we make of things. Hey friends, in my experience, most of us that come through those doors know all too painfully that those things are true in our lives, don't we? We know the mistakes. We know the regrets. We, we know the failures that are ours. We're all too aware that we're not what we should be. You don't need me to tell you what's wrong with you uh, any more than I need you to tell me what's wrong with me. But we all need a place that offers us hope. A place where we can find forgiveness and grace empowering you and me to live a new way and to leave old ways behind us. True? A few of you? <laughs> it's God's kindness. Not our condemnation that leads people to repentance, to a turning around. That's what the Bible says. Paul says in Romans, are you not realizing that God's kindness leads towards repentance? Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. This is the Jesus way. Jesus didn't search for them Sorry, Jesus did search for them and not for their sin. He sought them out, not their wrongdoing out. And we must be the same. Does that mean we're soft on sin? No way. Jesus was extremely serious about sin. Uh, he says sin is so serious if it's in your life, cut your hand off for goodness sake, rather than carry on sinning. We should be that serious about sin in this place and with equal seriousness take the grace of God towards those that sin. People are not looking to be told what's wrong, but they long to find a way to sort it out. There's a story of a father in Spain who fell out with his son, and the father uh, said that he, to his son that he wanted no more to do with him, and he sent his son away. He didn't want to see him, to know him, to hear from him uh, again. Years later, the condemning father realized that he'd been far too harsh on his son, and he wanted to put things right. So he put an advert in the Madrid newspaper, Paco, Meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. But Paco is a common name in Spain. When the father turned up at the hotel, he had to force his way through the crowd. All young men, all called Paco, all longing for forgiveness. People wanted to sort it out. And will we be the kind of community that helps people sort it out? And put it right. A place that forgives them to be different. And not condemns them to be the same. Think of the people who came to Jesus. He never condemned. Except the ones that came in their pompous arrogance. Saying they were right. And everyone else was wrong. Nicodemus in the middle of the night. The centurion in the middle of the day. The leper. The sinful woman. Zacchaeus. Matthew at the party. Everybody. And then at the end of his life. This great grace giver stretched out his hands wide on a cross, 
to offer grace one complete and final time. And just as he did that, another beggar longs for grace. And we pick up the story of the criminal. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, would you? The criminal on the cross there next to Jesus. The thief is gaunt and pale. His pitiful plight as he hangs on the cross. He's taking the last step down the spiral staircase of his own failure, ending in his public crucifixion. He can't hide who he is. He can't pretend he's naked with no cloak to cover his disgrace. He can't laugh it off, explain it away. This is who he is. What made him speak to Jesus? We don't know. Had he seen something about Jesus in the way he had embraced the nails or received the crown of thorns or whispered, Father, forgive? Whatever it was, Jesus had got his attention. Whatever it was, there was something different about the man on the cross next door. And suddenly this thief, who'd never spoken up for anybody, starts speaking up for Jesus. Verse 40. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. And here it comes. The recognition of guilt in this man's life that would become the highway for God's grace. In the very next verse. We are punished justly For we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. We're guilty, he's innocent. We're filthy, he's pure. We're wrong, he's right. And all the thief can do is what any one of us here can do, is throw ourselves on God's mercy. And he did. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. (laughs) Why? Why? Why on earth? Why should God possibly do that for him? What has there been about this man's life that should encourage God in any way, shape or form to offer this man mercy? Nothing. He's asking for everything, knowing he can offer nothing back. He's like you, and he's like me. Asking for it all, with nothing to offer in return. And there on the cross, the miracle of forgiveness flows. A sin-soaked criminal is received by a blood-stained saviour. Brilliant, genius grace. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus, a life of grace summed up in the words he breathed just a few verses earlier in that passage, 34. Father, forgive them. Forgive them as they drive the nails, for they do not know what they are doing. Have you met the grace giver? Have you met the grace giver? Maybe in life you've been surrounded by grace killers. They're everywhere, and in your average church, there are far too many so often. Maybe you've been surrounded by grace killers from a young age. And you've assumed that God is like that too. Churches and Christians can be so good at affirming that God is that kind of way. And sometimes people who say they love God, who know their Bibles really well, who go to church twice on a Sunday and never miss the prayer meeting, can be the biggest grace killers of all. All religion, all ritual. And no grace. We've met them in our story already. Grace killers condemn rather than forgive. 
They hold a grudge, not offer a helping hand. They criticize rather than congratulate. They look down rather than look out. They judge and never jest. They point rather than pull. They tower above rather than get alongside. Beware the grace killers. And there's a story that Jesus told. Just flick a few pages back to Luke chapter 15. It's a story that we think is all about grace. And in a sense, it is a a tremendous celebration of what grace is like. But the reason Jesus told it was not so much to highlight grace, but to expose the grace killers. The story of the prodigal son, the lost son. Notice how the whole story is introduced in verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The story of the lost son, Jesus tells in response to the muttering of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. It's that tension that forces or causes Jesus to tell the story. In the story, the father is God, the lost son is the the sinners and the tax collectors. So who is the elder brother? Hello? Absolutely. The elder brother is the Pharisees and the tax collectors, the mutterers about what's right and wrong. We get into the story. The boy's left home. He's wasted his money, squandered his life. Things are so bad that this Jewish lad from a Jewish home is working for a Gentile farmer with pigs, no less. You can't get any lower than that. Has he messed up? Yes. Has he failed? Yes. Is he guilty, deserving nothing? Yes. Does he know it? Yes. He decides the only thing he can do, just like all the people we've mentioned this morning, just like the woman caught in adultery, just like the thief on the cross, just like you and me, the only thing he can do is to go back home and throw himself on his father's mercy. So he does. He got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son. What does it mean? It means his father had been waiting, hoping. His father had never given up hope. Middle Eastern men didn't run for anything. They wore long robes that went right down to the bottom of their feet. So if they ran, they would immediately trip up unless they hitched their robe up and ran. But hitching your robe up uh, in running in Middle Eastern culture was so disgusting, so inappropriate, that you would not do it under any circumstances. In fact, the Pharisees had a law that if you got a bird trapped under your robe, you had to leave it there till bedtime. (laughs) Serious. Imagine them in church reading the lesson, can't you? Just got a bird in. Because you couldn't hitch it up. But what matters to this father? Nothing, nothing, nothing matters except getting his son back. Nothing matters. He wasn't interested in how bad his son had been, how messed up he had become. He was interested in getting him back and he started a party and everyone was thrilled except the fatted calf and the elder brother. The story is just fantastic, great celebration, mimicking the the joy in heaven when someone comes back to Father God, but it's interrupted by a very ominous meanwhile in verse 25. Meanwhile, uh uh-oh, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Grace killers love music and dancing. Not. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. The language in in English doesn't come across strongly enough. He calls a boy over, a little little lad playing in the yard, and he says to him, not not in a neutral phrase, what's going on here, or, or in an agreeable phrase, hey, what's happening here? 
It, the language is very angry and aggressive. What the hell is going on here is the sentiment of this older brother as he comes back to the house where there's music and dancing. His worst fears were confirmed. The boy says, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Notice, the grace of the father is extended even to the elder brother. The grace giver reaches even to grace killers. And in just five minutes, as we look at the elder brother, we need to understand what grace killers are like in case they are looking in our midst, in case they are looking in me and maybe in you. You see, grace killers have lost sight of what's important. The sun was back. That was all that was important. Hitch up your dress and run, whatever. But they lost sight of what's important, uh, this elder brother. Is having lost people back the most important thing, even if it means changing the way we do things to welcome them? Is having lost people back the most important thing, even if it means they might sit in my pew? What's the most important thing? You see, we all know people in churches who stamp and kick and shout, what the hell's happening here? When someone comes in smelling of the pigsty and a few things get changed to welcome them. We've all met people who stamp and kick and go, what the hell is going on here when there's rejoicing and singing and dancing because someone has been saved from a lost eternity? It's not the kind of church that supports rejoicing. For grace killers, rejoicing can be too much. For them, the diet of condemning, pointing, accusing is all they know. And why they like it? Because they haven't understood that the grace of God extends to them as well. They've lost sight of what they have. Notice what he says. Look, all these years, I've been slaving for you. Is that the truth? No. The beginning of the story, the elder son and the younger son are each given half the inheritance, half the rights, half the authority. Has he been? No. But he's come to lose sight of the grace that he has always had. And now he's stamping at his father, saying how unfair it is, how his father will never even kill a young goat when he's got half the inheritance, for crying out loud. And he resents someone celebrating the discovery of something that he has had all along, but lost sight of. The elder brother was no longer enjoying all that was his. And when we as Christians lose the joy of the grace that has been given to us, we become like the elder brother, killers of that grace. Grace killers never live in the fullness of all they have from God and cannot celebrate the forgiveness God gives so freely because they've got this twisted view of God. You've not even given me a goat when you've had half the inheritance. And grace killers are so quick to point out the faults in others. It's the elder brother that brings up the son's faults. You notice that? The father doesn't say anything about what the son has so clearly done wrong. And the brother, in bringing it up, exaggerates it just a little bit. That's what we do when we share, don't we? We add, we flavor it just to help it settle in the ears of our hearers. Who said anything about prostitutes, for example? But there it is from the elder brother. The father is prepared to forgive and forget. The father sets him free to be a son. The elder brother wants to keep him trapped. And they don't see their own sin. Grace killers can only see sin in other people and never in themselves. This is really dangerous. Really dangerous. 
The older brother became angry and refused to go in. The language there is weak uh, in our English. Basically, he was making a public scene outside the house so that everyone could see, humiliating his father by not submitting to his call to come in to the party. And whilst he's out there angry and refusing to go in, he says in the very next verse, but I obey you all the time. While he's disobeying his father, he's celebrating his own goodness and always doing what his father says. He cannot see the sin that is in his own life because he's too focused on the sin in somebody else's. And grace killers don't accept the grace of God in others. This son of yours. Never my brothers come home, but this son of yours. Question. If the father was like the elder brother, would the lost son have ever come home? What kind of church do we want? What kind of church do we need for lost people to make their way home? Like the father, please God. Or like the elder brother. Like the grace giver or the grace killers. The prophecy that stirred Rob Parsons to begin his campaign about bringing home the prodigals was given by an old wise man. When the father's house is full of the father's love, the prodigals will come home. When the father's house is full of the father's love, the prodigals will come home. Let's pray. Help me, Lord, to be a grace giver. Expose and stamp out the traits in me that make me a grace killer. And we go back to the cross. And there we see those arms stretched wide. The grace giver, offering grace totally, completely. For you, for me. And as we look into the eyes of the grace giver, May we receive so much that we couldn't earn and have done nothing to deserve. And having been forgiven so much, may we treat others the same. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like 